This morning we continue in the uh, series we've been in now for really the whole summer entitled Counterfeit Christianity. Had a good crowd in the first service and uh, you can tell it's summertime, you know, we have shift work almost it seems where some are here for a couple of Sundays and then they're gone for a week or two and then back again. But it's been a good series, Counterfeit Christianity. And as we've moved through this series, what we've done is really essentially is we've looked at a lot of different groups of uh, those that would call themselves Christian, at least if not overtly Christian, they would say they're supportive of the Christian faith, you know, for, as a viable faith. And we've looked at all these different groups and we've just evaluated them really in light of biblical Christianity. And so the very first week, a couple of months or so ago, we laid the foundation. We did kind of the 30,000 foot flyover and we looked down at some of the things we're going to be focusing on through, these, through this series, through these weeks. And, uh, and then we started with one group at a time, and uh, we've been moving through. So let, let me just ask you a question before we kind of recap. You know, at what point does a person or does a church cross the line in what they believe to where they can no longer be considered biblically Christian, right? To where they are no longer considered to be like a classic, orthodox, biblical Christian group. At what point do they cross a line where they can't be considered that any longer? Because there is a line somewhere in there. You know, for example, I mean, if you go to the Humane Society and you look at all the different dogs, you're going to see a variety of dogs. You're going to see dogs with short legs and dogs with long legs. You're going to see dachshunds and Great Danes and everything in between. You're going to see dogs that have spots and dogs that don't have spots. You're going to have black dogs and brown dogs and white dogs and mixed colored dogs. You're going to have a, a variety of dogs, but they're all dogs. But if you see a dog in there that's got wings, that's not a dog, that's a bird, right? If you see a dog in there that's got fins and flippers, that's not a dog, that's a, that's a fish, right? If that dog's got a pouch and is hopping around with an Australian bark, that's not a dog, right? That's a kangaroo. So there's a line there where there are certain qualities that you can no longer be considered that breed of animal. And I think there's a point where you can cross a line as well. And even though you may call yourself Christian as a group, Because you've crossed that line, you really can no longer be considered to be a classic biblical Christian group. And so that's what we've been looking at. We've been looking at different groups. You may call them cult groups, or you may call them counterfeit Christian groups. Groups that really would claim to be Christian, but at the heart of what they believe, they have crossed that line and can no longer be considered to be a Christian group. Now, this is not a, it's not a series that looks at different denominations. We're not looking at Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian. We're going to assume that for many of those denominations, they're going to be proclaiming the same message of the gospel, believing in the same God, proclaiming the same Jesus, using the same scripture and its same authority. All right. Now, there are liberal Baptist churches as well as all the other denominations as well, but this isn't a study of all that. This isn't necessarily a series that deals with different world religions, because if you ask a Hindu, are you Christian? They're going to say, no, I'm a Hindu. If you ask a Buddhist, are you Christian? They're going to say, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm a Buddhist. If you were to, to ask you know, a lot of different world religions, are you Christian? They're going to deny, no, I'm not a Christian. They're going to name whatever world religion they are. So this is not a series that deals with different world religions. This is a series that deals with counterfeit Christian groups. Those that would say, if you ask them, are you Christian? Their answer is going to be yes, You may see Christian in their title. You may see Christian on their sign. They're going to talk about Jesus and about God and about the Bible in many instances. And they're going to sound a lot like a biblical Christian group would. But when you begin to dig beneath the surface, there is a line that they cross in some of the very, very important areas of belief that they can really no longer honestly, truthfully 
be considered to be a Christian group, and they have to be treated ultimately differently. So that's what we've been doing through this series. The very first uh, group that we looked at, uh, the very first topic that we looked at was the authority of Scripture. And so we looked at how Scripture can be trusted, and we unpacked all of that. All of these messages, by the way, are on the website, on our website, so I won't, I won't go through them all again, obviously, today. But we looked at the very first group, uh, the very first doctrine was the authority of Scripture. And the group we looked at was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And we looked at their basic doctrine, but the one area that we pulled out was their authority. They have four different books that they consider to be authoritative. And, uh, and so we looked at that, and we looked at what biblical Christianity believes about the authority of Scripture. And what we found was that our authority is the Bible. It's uh, the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, and we talked about why that's authoritative, why it can be trusted today, and so that's where we started. Now, the next week, we looked at the doctrine of God, of who God is, and uh, how God has revealed himself in his authoritative work called the Bible, and we compared that to the New Age movement, and uh, we talked about how they view God, and God is impersonal, and God is, is uh, somewhat of a of very intangible and, and uh, somewhat of a force, and, and uh, we just kind of talked about their view of God and what the Bible says about God. And then the next week, we talked specifically about the person of Jesus Christ. The group we looked at was the Jehovah's Witnesses, probably the one group that you're most familiar with. They've come through your neighborhood just as they've come through mine. And if you move, they come through that neighborhood too, just as, as they have for me. And so, uh, you know, we, we probably have had conversations with them, and hopefully so, because we need to be in dialogue with people about, about our faith. And so uh, we looked at the doctrine of, of the person of Jesus and how Jesus is God despite what Jehovah's Witnesses would proclaim, that he is God, and uh, his works prove it. Uh, what he said about himself proves it. What others say about him prove it. You know, all, all prophecy proves it. I mean, all through Scripture, we see that Jesus is presented as no less than God himself. And so we looked at that particular group, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we looked at the deity of Christ. And then last week, we looked at probably, I don't know, just kind of the strangest group that we've looked at so far, and that is the Church of Scientology. That's their labeling, not mine, the Church of Scientology. Uh, If you go on their website, man, a very flashy website, really aimed at answering or providing answers to life's questions and uh, just a very well-done website, but their belief system is, is very, very skewed and uh, very science fictionish, which is not surprising, being that their founder was a science fiction writer uh, as well. And so we looked at the, uh, the Church of Scientology, and the doctrine we looked at specifically was that of sin. Uh, for the Scientologists, they, sin's not even on their radar. It's not even a word in their vocabulary necessarily. Uh, they view life's problems, man's greatest problem, as something far different, uh, and, and sin is not an issue for them at all. And so we looked at what the Bible says about sin, and the Bible says a lot about sin. It's our greatest problem, by the way, and it's a pro- the, the one problem that we have to be sure that is remedied before we step out into eternity. And so we looked at that last Sunday, a very important message, because our culture doesn't call sin what it is either, and uh, that's only getting worse and worse and worse. And so whenever we have a relationship with God, we have to do business with our sin. We have to address that. We have to deal with that. We have to own it and face up to it before we can ultimately come to God on his terms. And so that's what we looked at last, last Sunday was the Church of Scientology and ultimately the doctrine of sin. Well, today what I want us to look at is yet another group and yet another doctrine of what biblical Christianity teaches. And the group is called the Unity School of Christianity, the Unity School of Christianity. So this would be, I think if my counting is is correct, this would be the fifth group that we've looked at. We've only got another couple of weeks or so in this series, but this will be the fifth one that we've looked at, the Unity School of Christianity. And so as I've done through this series, 
I just want to remind you again of why we are looking at these groups, including the one this morning. And the reason really is twofold. One, it's because we have to be sure that we know what we believe. It is not enough to be a part of a doctrine. Uh, I mean, to be a part of a uh, to be a part of a denomination. If you think that just being a Baptist or being a Presbyterian, because maybe you were raised that way, or Methodist, or regardless of what denominational tag you may have carried through your life, if you think that's enough, it is not enough. And there is not a holy bubble around us that insulates us from error in this world. I remember one uh, student in my ministry when I first started in ministry in the early 1990s. This is probably the mid-90s or so. Uh, he, uh, he had come to know Christ. He'd given his life to Jesus and had begun to really grow in his faith. He was just absolutely on fire. He was in high school. He was a part of my ministry then and uh, just growing like crazy. Well, he, he began to drift and he, he sort of became uh, more and more absent. I mean, just kind of, you know, what's going on with him? Where is he? That kind of stuff. Couldn't really track him down. And come to find out that he had been in the mall one day and had crossed paths with somebody from a counterfeit Christian group, from a cult group that I guess had been out there, you know, doing their work or whatever. I don't know. But he had crossed paths with them, struck up a conversation, and long story short, had become involved then in that group. And as a result of that, had pretty much just sort of kicked to the curb some of the major aspects of his own faith to be a part of that particular cult group, that counterfeit Christian group. And so if we think that because I go to church every Sunday or because I've been a Christian for a long time or for whatever reason, if we think that this would never happen to me, I'm not going to be sucked into any kind of error, you know, I'm going to be okay, we cannot afford to have that kind of a mindset. We have to be people of God's Word. We have to grow deep in our relationship with God. Listen, just coming to church on a Sunday does not cover it. Just showing up to Sunday, just punching the clock and saying, hey, I'm here, you know, I'm going to be okay, does not cut it because you do not know when your marriage may be in crisis or your personal faith may be shaken or you may begin to have doubts or questions. You never know when those times may come and you may not be at a place where you're very vulnerable in your faith. And here comes somebody claiming to have all the answers, doesn't line up with scripture and before long you've made a couple of connections and you're in with the wrong group, believing things that scripture just does not support. And so we we do this to help, to help us, the body of Christ, to know what we believe. We should be able to articulate clearly what we believe about the basic doctrines of our own faith. Because if, our, if we're willing to place our eternity in the hands of God, right, in the hands of Jesus Christ, then shouldn't we be able to articulate and to know and to communicate, right, what we believe about the basic, the basic truths of our own faith, and so we go through this series to help protect ourselves, to help us to understand what we believe, why we believe it, because far too many church seats are filled by people that have been saved for decades, but they don't have a clue how to, how to even understand who God is or how he works or who Jesus exactly is. They just don't even know. To help us to understand those things, but to also have a heart to share those things with those that are in error, those that God may bring across our path. So that's why we do this series. Imagine that you... You go to work tomorrow, and during your lunch break, you leave the office, and you go run an errand, and imagine for a moment, as horrible as this thought is, imagine for a moment that you go into cardiac arrest wherever you are, and a third-year med student comes walking across your path, and somebody recognizes them and says, hey, can you come help this person in cardiac arrest? And imagine that third-year med student says, I got nothing to offer, and they keep on going. How much difference is there between that and a person who has a relationship with God, a, rel a relationship with God, right? You are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And there are instances where God brings people in error to your doorstep, knocking on your door. Or they may work in your, in your office here. They may be three cubicles down, or they live at the other end of your street, or they're in your family. Or maybe strangers that God brings across your path. And when we have nothing to offer, though we're followers of Christ, because we don't know his word, because we've never really, really grown deep in our relationship with him, we have nothing to offer to those people lost in error. How much difference is it really? How much difference is it really than that third-year med student who walks right past you in the midst of cardiac arrest saying, you know what, i got nothing to offer. So this is a really important series. It's the only time in my 13 years here that I've ever preached a series like this on a Sunday morning. And so it's really, really important for us to understand what we believe, why we believe it, and at the same time, very possibly, learn a few things about some groups along the way. And so the Unity School of Christianity, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me give you a little bit of their history. I'll cover a little bit of what they believe, and then we'll jump into a couple of their doctrines in particular and see what the Bible says about it specifically. Uh, the Unity School of Christianity, let me just say up front, is not the Unification Church, right? The uh, Sun Young Moon, the Moonies, that, it's not that group, okay? That is called the Unification Church. The Unity Church, School of Christianity is not that. The Unity School of Christianity is also not Unitarian Universalism, uh, of which there is a church set up uh, in our own city downtown that is that also. It's not that. The Unity School of Christianity is a different group. Set up here in Savannah, there's a location on Sunset Boulevard, 15 minutes from here, uh, just off the island. Uh, only about 1,000 of those churches are found worldwide, so it's not a very large movement, not nearly on the same scale as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or uh, the Jehovah's Witness, the Kingdom Halls. I mean, it's not on that same scale in regards to size. It's much, much smaller, but again, there is a presence here in our own city. But I'd be willing to say, though, you may not have a clue where that church is, and though you may have never met someone who says, hey, I'm a part of the Unity Church movement, there's a good chance that you're familiar to some degree with some of what they believe because we've covered some of that before. Their history goes back to a couple named Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, uh, late 1800s, really nice-looking couple. I didn't take this picture myself in the late 1800s, but I did come across it online. And so Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, interesting story. She was diagnosed with tuberculosis early in life, and as part of her treatment, she uh, sat down with a, with a guy who was an advocate of metaphysical healing. Uh, and so uh, through the course of her interaction with that particular person who taught her about metaphysical healing, she was so greatly impacted that she and her husband began to, to write a monthly magazine called New Thought. It was later called Unity. And, uh, and in this monthly magazine that would come out, uh, in really at that point, late 1800s, early 1900s, she would kind of lay the groundwork that would provide the structure for the whole Unity Church movement, the Unity School of Christianity as we know it today. And so there's a very metaphysical bent to a lot of what they believe specifically about life and about death and about the afterlife, those kinds of things. In 1903, they established the very first Unity Church that would be part of the Unity School of Christianity. And as I mentioned earlier, now it's up to about 1,000 churches in 100 years, you know, and so it's not growing rapidly, but you still do find it, again, even one here in our own city. So when you begin to study what they believe, the interesting thing is, we take their picture down, when you, when you study what they believe, what you find is, again, it's going to go right back to what their leaders believed. A lot of the doctrine that you find that is taught in their churches today 
including the one here in this city. I listened to a portion of one of their messages on their website, and it lines up with pretty much everything I'm about to share with you, that it goes back to a lot of their teachings there in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so what, what is it exactly that they believe? Well, let me just say this before I start moving through piece by piece, that in the first three centuries of the early church, right? Jesus came and he died and he rose and he ascended back to the Father. The book of Acts captures for us the beginning of the early church. Those first three centuries of existence, there was a heresy that the early church faced that was the most dangerous heresy of all. And it was a heresy called Gnosticism. You may or may not have heard that word before. Well, Gnosticism, the first three centuries, was, was incredibly dangerous to the early church. And you have to, you have to understand that for us, we have, we have not just a Bible, Old and New Testament, but we also have years of the church the church being able to, to kind of lay out what normal biblical doctrine looks like of who Jesus is and who God is and, and so what salvation is and those kinds of things. Well, for the early church, they didn't have the New Testament. They were living the New Testament. And so for the early church, especially in the first century, but then in the second and third centuries, they're having to really hammer out what is, what is normative for us. Where is the line that, you, that, that if you cross it, you're no longer really considered Christian anymore? And so they had to make a lot of hard decisions, and this heresy called Gnosticism was the most dangerous heresy the church faced in the first three centuries. Some of the early church fathers would write against Gnosticism. They would call names, man, it would get ugly, and they would write these long discourses and name names and say, this is heretical, this is what the church needs to believe. So they were sorting all this out. Well, what Gnosticism basically believed was a couple things. One was that God was unknowable, that he was more like a theory almost, kind of like a divine essence to a degree. He wasn't a personal God. That's what Gnosticism taught. What they also believed was that matter, things you could see and touch and feel, matter was evil and the spirit was, was good. Matter was evil, the spirit was good. Remember last week, Church of Scientology? Remember I told you about their belief of the cross? Yeah, if you go on their website, if you look at any Scientology church today, you're going to see, not, you're not only going to see the word church, but you're going to see a cross there. That cross doesn't, believe, doesn't mean what you think it means for them. The, the horizontal beam, as I said last week, represents matter, <laughs> and the vertical beam that ascends higher represents spirit. It's just a Gnostic belief. It goes all the way back to the first three centuries. Well, when you look at the unity school of Christianity, you're going to see a lot of that same basic belief that comes right out of the first three centuries you're going to see a lot of that rear its head again. In fact, a lot of cult groups today can trace all the way back to a lot of beliefs that are rooted ultimately in Gnosticism. So what does the Unity School believe about God? They believe that God, again, is unknowable, that God is a divine essence. Listen to some of the words they use, and I capture this right off their website, some of the words that they use to describe God. Quote, divine energy, substance, principle, universal mind. See, the picture that the Unity School of Christianity would have about God, even though they use the word Christianity in their title, presents God as being less than what the Bible says God is. Because the Bible says that God is knowable, that God is personal, God is eternal, God is creator, God has revealed himself, God desires relationship with us. He sent his son Jesus to, to be able to, to pay for sin, to establish relationship with us. And so the Unity School of Christianity has this Gnostic view of who God is. And when you begin to look at who Jesus is, it follows that same pattern, that Jesus is uh, a way shower, right? That he lived a good life, but he, along with 
many others in history, simply point the way to the divine essence. That's their view of who Jesus is. That he is a way shower, that he was a great teacher, a moral man. That's how they would view him. But they would view him as less than God, the way Scripture speaks of Jesus. Here's something interesting they do, is they, they use the term Christ to refer to the divinity that they believe all of us have as people. Uh, the Unity School of Christianity and Gnosticism both separate Jesus and Christ. They see Jesus as just a man who was given the designation. He, he was aware of his own divinity when he ultimately became the Christ. And they feel like for mankind that you also are divine. Even though Scripture doesn't teach that, Scripture speaks just the opposite. opposite. And they, view, they, they believe that the Christ is that little spark of divinity that all of us have. That's the view of the Unity School of Christianity. If you begin to look at what their authority is, they will have some high views of the Bible to some degree. They see it as a valuable resource, but they don't treat the Bible the way that biblical Christianity would present it. They treat it as more of a, uh, an allegory, that there are a lot of good principles to live by, like a fable, like reading Aesop's fables. You'll learn some principles, you know, be happy for what you got. Don't, you know, it's not all sour grapes, that kind of stuff. They would look at the Bible as that. It's just allegory. You know, it's not God's word to us. It's not without error. It's not something that we live by as though God spoke it to us. No, it'll give us some principles to live by, but really it's just allegorical. It's all symbolic. That's, that's their view of Scripture. And so if you begin talking about the Bible with someone from there, you know, you're probably going to be able to have some conversation. You may even hear it brought up in a message from here from, from time to time uh, there, but it's not going to be viewed the way Scripture speaks of itself as the authoritative Word of God. When you begin to look at the issues of, uh, of sin for the Unity School of Christianity, sin, again, is, is not an issue. Man doesn't need atonement, they don't believe. Man doesn't need forgiveness. They understand man's problem as not realizing his divinity, a divinity that Scripture tells us we don't have. <laughs> so when you look at salvation, that's the doctrine I want us to pull out this morning. When you look at salvation... They believe salvation comes when you, as a created being, recognize the divinity that you carry on the inside. They believe that you are inherently good, that you're not inherently sinful, that you have divinity in and of yourself, and that you need to come to grips with that and recognize it for what it is. And when you do, you will understand salvation, so to speak. If you ask them about life after death, their church doesn't have a specific position about life after death. Um, they do believe that a person transitions to another state after death but they don't have an official position as a church on life after death. Uh, if you were to ask them about heaven and hell, uh, the Unity School of Christianity would teach that heaven and hell are both states of mind, that heaven is a state of mind, a positive state of mind, that hell is a negative state of mind. Now, we understand because we at times use that terminology ourselves, don't we? Right, because when you when you like if you're married now, you met your spouse that very first date. You know, you came home, you told all your friends, "Oh man, it was heaven." Right? You said that, and then you got married and had some arguments, and there were times that you kind of thought the other direction. I guess so. You understand, right? You've used that terminology before, right? <laughs> yeah, don't act all holy. You know, you've had those conversations, and so 
So you've used that terminology. Well, the problem is for the Unity School of Christianity, that, that, that's, kinda, that's really their belief. That's their definitive you know, uh, default mode in regards to life after death. They don't have a, a, a position on it. But if you ask them about heaven and about hell specifically, you know, they're going to say, well, they're just states of mind. I mean, heaven is a positive state of mind in this life, and hell is a negative state of mind in this life. You know, really no more beyond that. And so, so there's no clear representation, there's no clear understanding of life after death. Here's the good news. We've already established in the series that Scripture is our authority, right? That God has written it, He wrote it for us uniquely, that we can live by it, that we can bank on it. We've already established that. And so uh, let's just take a moment this morning, in the few minutes that I've got left, to, to sift through salvation and life after death from a biblically Christian view. Okay, that's what I want us to look at today. We've already looked at biblical Christianity's take on the Bible, on God, on Jesus, on sin, uh, and man. Today, let's look at the biblical Christian view of salvation and of life after death, because thankfully, the Bible has an awful lot to say about those two topics specifically. Let me give you just a few bullets for us to move through. Every single one of these is important, and if you've got something to write with, I really, really hope that you'll jot these down. Number one, what does biblical Christianity teach us about life after death? Number one, it teaches us that our existence as people does not end at the point of physical death. The Bible teaches us that our lives do not cease to exist at the point of physical death. You see, whenever we have a loved one who passes away, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's an aunt and uncle, maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a close friend, but whenever we have a loved one that passes away, we come to a place, don't we, where we really begin to ask questions we never asked before about life and about death and about what comes next. Probably for most everybody here, you've had to experience that. You've had to deal with the death of someone who meant something to you. And probably on the heels of that, you began to ask yourself some questions. What do I really believe? What does the Bible really say? What really does happen next? Where are they now? What are they doing now? What about myself when my time comes? And what the Bible teaches us I believe first and foremost is that at the point of death physically, our existence does not cease. We continue on. No, we did not have a time, or, or no, we did not always exist eternally in the past, as many cult groups will, will have you believe. You have not always existed, but once you were conceived and your life came into being, your life is never going to end from this point forward. You will always exist from this point on eternally. That's what biblical Christianity ultimately teaches. God knew what he wanted for your life. He knew what your days would hold. The scriptures do say that before you even came into existence, Psalm 139, God already had marked out your days. God is all-knowing. He knew what your life was going to be, but you have not always existed in eternity but you always will from this point forward. And just because our eyes close in death on this side does not mean that we do not exist ultimately somewhere. Look at this passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 9. You can mark this in your Bible, or if you want, just jot it down and you can reference this later. But Hebrews 9 verse 27, a real important passage of Scripture that helps to, to, um, to, to bring clarity to a lot of false teaching regarding life after death. It says, it is appointed for men once to die, or to die once, and after this comes judgment. And so once our eyes close in death, once our lives on this earth as we know it are done, what biblical Christianity teaches 
is that we will continue to exist. Life is not over because life on this earth as we know it comes to an end. Number two, the Bible also teaches us, biblical Christianity also believes and teaches that heaven and hell are literal places. Though the Unity School of Christianity would have us to believe and would teach that they are merely states of mind in this life, either positive or negative, what biblical Christianity teaches is that heaven and hell are real places. They are real existing places, and we see this throughout the pages of Scripture. I would say Old Testament as well as New Testament. Both would support that. Uh, For example, take a look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's not going to say heaven. But notice what, it's, what it is going to say that uh, gives us some clarity. Paul is writing here, and he says to the Christian church in the city of Corinth, he says to these Christians, he says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body. That's a reference to death. Paul says to these Christians, we prefer to be absent from the body and to be what? To be at home with the Lord. Paul's understanding there was that when my life ends and when I die and I'm absent from the body, I'm not going to cease to exist. Paul says, I'm not going to just somehow shut down. Jehovah's Witnesses would call that soul sleep, where you just sort of cease to be aware of anything until the point of the resurrection. There is no mention of soul sleep in the Bible. Paul understood that when I'm done here on this earth, my eyes are going to open up somewhere else. And for me, he says, as a follower of Christ, I'm going to be at home with the Lord. And so whether it's in In the Old Testament, New Testament, whether you're reading the Gospels, when Jesus is talking about heaven and hell, whether you're reading in the book of Revelation and there's mention of heaven and hell, regardless, the Bible paints the picture that both heaven and hell are real places that really exist, that are inhabited by real conscious people. That's the picture that we see. And so Paul understood this. Speaking of heaven, he would would call it gain. Paul would say, when my life is done, he would say, this is gain for me to go on to be with the Lord. This is a good thing. In Scripture, though, we also see mention of of hell, the existence of hell, the real literal existence of hell. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 would refer to hell as being a place of unquenchable fire, a place that was eternal, that never ended. He would go on to speak in Matthew chapter 25 as well about those two destinations where the Father would separate one from the other, the sheep from the goats, figuratively speaking, one with the destination of heaven, the other with the destination of hell. And in that context, Jesus would speak very literally. They weren't places that were allegorical. Jesus was speaking of real, literal places in existence that would house real people, one heaven and the other hell. You know, perhaps there's not been another doctrine outside of the deity of Christ today that has been attacked, in Christian circles at least, more than the doctrine of hell. Rob Bell, a number of years ago, at that point, was a very uh, uh, well-known author and pastor. He's become somewhat less well-known now because of a book he wrote that basically uh, revealed his position that hell was not a place that people would inhabit, that, that uh, he, he would kind of fall off the, the deep end, just gravitate fully away from what Scripture teaches about hell. Hell is a real place. Heaven is a real place. 
you know, pastors at times get a, get a bad rap because of being fire and brimstone. And yes, I understand that there are much more to preach and teach on to help us to grow in our faith and hopefully understand that just through my teaching and my preaching. But man, there is a place where we have to talk about hell and have to talk about heaven because of what the scriptures say, what biblical Christianity teaches, that they are real places in existence. And there are many different doctrines, erroneous doctrines that try to do away with it. There is no purgatory, for example. The Catholic Church that teaches about purgatory, you don't find that in scripture. You find that in the Apocrypha, but if you establish what Scripture truly is, the Apocrypha is not part of Scripture. So nowhere in the Old and New Testaments do we see any reference to any type of a purgatory where you somehow work to pay off your sins. That is counter to the Old and New Testament to begin with. Jesus already paid for our sins, right? How are we to be expected by God to pay for in completion the remainder of what we owe because of our sin when Jesus himself from the cross said, it is finished, Right, so there, there's no purgatory, there's no soul sleep, there are no second chances. When, when, we, when our lives come to an end here and we ultimately stand before God, there's not another second chance to get it right. I mean, these stakes are extremely high. And for some of you, I would be willing to say we will never have this assembly of people the same again, ever, ever again. We'll never have this same dynamic, this assembly of people. Because some of you are never going to come back. You, you may get offended by this message, say, you know what, I'll go find another church and you're not going to come back. Others of you, uh, you you're just going to find something else more important to do on a lot of other Sundays, and you're going to come back sporadically. For some of us, who knows? I might not make it to next Sunday, right? I mean, we don't have a guarantee of what our next breath is. And who knows that for some, this may be the last opportunity to hear this kind of truth from Scripture, not from me, but from Scripture, and to decide some very big decisions as to what you're going to do about it. And so Scripture speaks of heaven and hell as very literal places, one that we can be extremely grateful for, the other that we should be certain, uh, more certain than anything else, that we have replied or responded to God so that we don't ultimately end up there. And so no purgatory, there's no soul sleep, no annihilation, no of those things. We will stand before God one day. Heaven and hell will be on the line. You know, this raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Raises a lot of questions. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? This is probably the most common question that is asked, not out of curiosity for an answer, but to try to refute the existence of hell. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Let me give you principle number three, the third thing that biblical Christianity teaches that's important for us to recognize, and that's that heaven and hell both are justified because of the nature of God. Both are justified. Justified ultimately, listen, because of the nature of God. We have no problem with heaven, do we? We say God is loving, God is kind, God is good, God is a God of grace, God is a God of forgiveness, God is a God of mercy. Give me heaven makes perfect sense. The question marks come when we begin to consider hell. And again, it's that question that often gets asked How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Here's what we have to keep in mind, is that we have to deal with God in the totality of his nature. We cannot just deal with him looking and pulling out certain aspects of his nature. We have to deal with him in the totality of his nature. You don't like it when someone only deals with you based on a part of who you are, do you? You don't like it when someone, you know, maybe you get a little bit angry and you say something you shouldn't and someone holds that against you and they characterize you based on that one comment, they characterize you as a mean, angry person. Because what you want to say is, oh, I've got a lot of other qualities in my life that need to be considered. 
Now, I'm not saying that God is wrong by creating hell. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is that we have to deal with God on the totality of who he is. Yes, he's loving and kind and good and merciful and full of grace. Heaven makes perfect sense. But he is also creator. He is also holy. He is also perfect. And he is also just. And when we think of a God who is holy, who is perfect, who has no stain of iniquity or sin amongst himself, except for when he took it upon himself on the cross in the person of Jesus, when we think of a God who is completely just, then hell also makes perfect sense. Because God must, as a result of his own holiness and justice, he must deal with sin justly. And when we think of the atrocity of what sin is, it's a personal rebellion in the face of a holy God. When we begin to see the atrocity of what sin is against the backdrop of the beauty of God's own holiness, listen, hell makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Imagine the person that means more to you than anyone else on the face of this earth. And imagine that upon that person is committed the most heinous crime that you can imagine, whatever that crime may be. The person who perpetrates that crime is captured, they're brought before a judge, and imagine as that judge looks down in the eyes of the one who perpetrated the most heinous crime against the person you love more than anyone else on this face of this earth, whether it be a child or a parent or or a spouse or regardless. Imagine that judge looks down with all the facts and says, you know, because I'm a loving judge and a judge of grace and kindness and goodness, knowing what you've done, I choose to let you go. You're free. You would call that judge corrupt and you would call that judge unjust because loving, kind, good, just judges deal with wrong and sin. And God is the same. When we think of heaven, it makes perfect sense because of the nature of God. When we think of hell, It makes perfect sense because of the nature of God. But read this passage in Ezekiel 33. And in the midst of all of that, see the heart of God. Ezekiel 33, let's bring that verse up. Say to them, God says, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? O house of Israel. You see, when we see the full picture, we see a God who is creator, who is eternal, who is without beginning, without end, a God who loves his creation deeply, a God who cannot turn a blind eye to sin lest he would be unjust, and yet a God who in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, chose when he saw his creation, he chose to pay for their sin himself. And when he sent Jesus to die on that cross, he came as fully God and fully man, never laid aside his deity. When he died as a perfect substitute and a perfect sacrifice for us, what God demonstrated was his ultimate justice when Jesus died for our sin. But he also demonstrated his ultimate love when he died for us. And both heaven and hell make perfect sense in the view of biblical Christianity. Number four, and we're done. What biblical Christianity teaches is that our eternal destiny, destination, regardless of whether that's heaven or hell, our eternal destination is solely 
determined. It's only determined by what we do with Jesus Christ. Nothing else. How much money is in your account will mean nothing when you stand before God. Who you knew, who you rubbed shoulders with, how big your business became, how great your family is, whether your child was an honor student, all the people that you moved in and out in the circles of, who you impacted, how many little old people you helped across the street, all the good deeds you did will matter very little. I would say none when you stand before God. It'd be like pouring a cup of water over Niagara Falls. I mean, it, it's, it just it makes no difference. And the only one thing that will make a difference when we stand before God as to whether or not ultimately because we exist somewhere after our life on this earth is done, the only thing that will make a difference and that will matter is what we did with the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. Jesus would speak of this himself when he would say in John 3.16, let's bring that passage up, a verse you know well, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is saying this in John 3, that he gave his only begotten son, speaking of himself, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life, everlasting life, life that will never end. Why would Jesus say this? Because Jesus knew that life continues after our point of physical death, that we will either be in a place of perishing called hell or a place ultimately in the presence of God for all of eternity. And he said the only way we get there is ultimately through himself. He would say in John 14 that no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You see, Jesus is not a way shower, as many of the cult groups like to, sh to say. Oh, there were many that came along before him and since then that were enlightened. And Jesus is another way shower. No, Jesus is not the way shower. He never claimed to be that. He claimed to be the way. He's not the map that tells us how to get there. He, he, is, he is the way. He is the, he is the only one that can make us right with God. Reminds me of a story about a fellow who was in the deep, dark jungles of Africa, and he was walking through with, uh, with one of the native leaders that was leading their, their, uh, their group through, and that native leader had a machete, and he was just constantly going, clearing the way. And, uh, you know, the fellow said to him, you know, in reference to that, he said, uh, you know, looks like you really know the way of where you're going. And the, 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 the uh, African leader looked back at him and said, sir, I don't know the way, I am the way. <laughs> in other words, we're only getting through here because of me, and that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, I don't just point you to the Father, but if you want to have a relationship with the Father, it's only going to be through me who gets you there. And so there are groups at every turn that will like to tell us their version of what salvation is and their version of what, of what life after death is. But what matters most is biblical Christianity. What does the Bible teach? And the Bible teaches us that we will exist somewhere forever. That that place is either going to be heaven or hell, real literal places. That regardless of where we go, God will be justified in sending us there. But the only way to make it to heaven and the only way we'll end up in hell is based solely on what we do with Jesus. That if we turn from our sin and ask Jesus to come in and forgive us and just take over our lives to be our Savior and our Lord, He will do just that. He will come in, he will forgive, he will take what he did on the cross, apply it to our sin, and he will take who he is, the very righteousness of God, and he will credit it to our account. So that when you get to heaven and you stand before God, if God were to say, why should I let you in? You've sinned. You'll say, yes, I have, but I know Jesus. I surrendered my life to him in response to the message of the gospel, laying down my sin and inviting him in to take over. And he gave his righteousness to me. And God will say, heaven is your home. Not because you were good enough, 
but because of Jesus. Hey, do you know Jesus that way? Do you, do you remember a time in your life when you prayed and invited Jesus Christ, God himself, to come and forgive you and to save you and take over? Do you remember that? If you haven't, you can do it right where you sit today. With the simplicity and the humility of a child, saying, Jesus, would you even forgive and save me? And if you have, hey, what are you doing to grow deeper in your relationship with a God who loves you like that? And who are you telling who doesn't know him yet the good news of how they can have a relationship with him as you do? Let's pray. Lord, you know the stakes are high. That's why you came and died for us. You could have just come and done a lot of miracles and taught us a lot of things that would help us in this life. But you saw beyond our lives. You saw into eternity. And you saw that sin requires payment of the highest order. And because of that, Lord Jesus, you came for us and you died in our place. Regardless of what a group called a church may proclaim, what matters most is what your word tells us. And God, we thank you that you've given us the truth, that your word teaches us that life does continue after our days are done. Lord, what a joy that is for many of us who have loved ones who knew Jesus and who have died, to know that they exist still today. And know we can't see them, and know we can't talk to them, but because of our own relationship with Christ, we know we'll see them again. And Lord, what a joy that is. Thank you that that's not allegory. Thank you that's not fable. Thank you that that's your grand design. But God, it's also very sobering to know that there are people that we love who don't know you. And Lord, the day will come when their life on this earth ends. And if they don't have a relationship with you today, they will never have a relationship with you. And so God, give us boldness to speak truth with love into the lives of those that we encounter. Maybe even those who knock on our door bringing in another gospel. God, may we be mindful to examine our own hearts, even right now in this moment. Lord, to see if we truly know that we have given our lives to Christ, that we have prayed and invited Jesus to come and to forgive us and to be our Savior and our Lord. And God, if not, that we would nail that down today right where we sit and have that conversation with you, Jesus, asking you to come and forgive and take over. Lord, what a joy to know that we can leave this place today knowing that we belong to you. And Lord, it doesn't matter what we've done or how far we've wandered or how much we've ruined our lives. Lord, today you can give a new start and a new heart and make heaven our home through a relationship with Christ. So bless our decisions, we pray, God. Help us to get them right. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.